Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. For our call to confession this morning, we're looking at Proverbs 10, verses 20 and 21. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, the heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. This morning I would like to continue looking at the relationship between our hearts and our lips. We are given the distinction again between the righteous and the fools. The righteous bring forth words that are valuable, not for just gaining knowledge and insight, but words that provide sustenance. The wisdom of the righteous produces prosperity, not just for themselves, which is a great blessing from the Lord, but also provides food and life for those around them. The tongue of the righteous speaks words of sound counsel and encouragement, words of love that bring unity and peace among brothers. The fool's heart, on the other hand, is given little value, producing no gain for themselves and ultimately leading to their own death through their own lack of sense. These verses challenge us to examine our own hearts, seeing places where we have harbored foolish thoughts and attitudes, places where we have lacked sense, not heeding instruction, but relying on our own understanding. But this proverb also shows us the great blessings that flow out of a heart changed by God, a heart filled with wisdom that leads to life, both for the present and in the age to come. May we strive as brothers and sisters in Christ to grow in wisdom, praying that God would change our hearts and renew us by his spirit, that we would seek to be conformed to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This proverb reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Oh, come, let us worship the God. received over the last few days and it's been a joy to meet some of you hopefully I'll meet all of you at some point and thank you for your prayers and for your spirit I pray that this time here is a help and a blessing to you all and that God would continue to grow and have his hand upon your church and your pastor and you all corporately we have just weathered a election cycle as you know and as the dust settles I can promise you that the words of the psalmist, the inspired words of the psalmist, will once again prove true. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Or I could state that verse another way, with a joke, by telling the old story about a preacher who was preaching on the Lord's Day, and he was preaching on the Ninth Commandment, and he rhetorically asked the question to the congregation, don't you all know where liars go? And then a Wise crack from the audience, Washington. Now don't take me as saying I don't think you should all be avoiding voting or avoid civic political involvement. Not so. You should do that. You should civically be involved as Christians. What I am saying, though, is that all those activities and also everything we do in this life is subject to the nature of this world. Put not your trust in princes. In all situations, in the best of times and in the worst of times, 
We must be a people of prayer and a people of the word. We must direct our words, our petitions, our anxieties to God our Father. And we must always be listening to and learning from his word. Reading the Bible, in other words, grows us up into the kind of people who can then turn and rightly read the world around us. To demonstrate this, let's take a biblical story about Hannah here that shows a faithful prayer offered at the worst of times. And then allow that to teach us how to read our situation and maybe see it not so bad as it might be, or we might be tempted to think it is. All right, it's going to sound like I'm changing subjects, but I'm not. Trust me. Let me demonstrate this by taking an example from the Psalms. In the CREC, in your church, uh, I gather, and in my church and in other churches like ours, we especially emphasize the singing of Psalms. We did so this morning. Uh, David teaches us in Psalm 72 that the Psalms are prayers offered to God, lyrical prayers. Uh, the verse at the very end of Psalm 72, thus the prayers of Des J David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Not the Psalms of the prayers of Jesse, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, the prayers. He's praying when he's writing these and singing these Psalms, these lyrics. Here's a specific example. In Psalm 54, David writes this as a masthead to the Psalm. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? And so the Psalms are prayers written specifically by certain men in certain situations of life. And in this one, Psalm 54, David is writing a prayer during a time in his life when he's being chased and almost killed numerous times by Saul, King Saul, his father-in-law. He's writing about a crucible of life, a fiery trial of life. And out of that fiery trial of life comes this lyric, comes this song. And we can go to 1 Samuel and we can read all about that story in chapter 24 and 26. It's like a backdrop for Psalm 54. Now, I use the word crucible there. For you younger people or people that don't know, a crucible is a container that you use to melt precious metals in. If you guys have watched The Lord of the Rings, uh, at the very beginning when the forging of the ring happens, there's this cup where the gold is in it. And it's in the fire with tongs and it comes out and Sauron's making the, the, the one great ring or whatever. That's a crucible, that little cup. It's made of clay or graphite. You can heat it up over a thousand degrees and it won't melt, but everything inside it melts. Now crucible is also used in our modern vernacular as a metaphor. It's a situation or a severe trial which different elements interact leading to the creation of something new, a crucible. The book of Samuel begins with a woman, seemingly insignificant, humble, and she's put into a crucible by Yahweh. The way Yahweh deals with Hannah in the chapter 1 of Samuel becomes a type or a metaphor or an example of how he's going to deal with all of Israel throughout the rest of the book. He takes Hannah from glory to greater glory, and he takes Israel from glory to greater glory. 
We'll get to all that though now. Let's look at the text. In chapter 1, verse 1, we're starting off with this man, this righteous man, Elkanah. We're given his, his hometown, we're given his lineage, and we're given a little bit of information about him and his wives. But remember, that's not where the context begins. The context of 1 Samuel, chapter 1, is also the end of the book of Judges. We're coming on the heels of Judges. And what's going on in the book of Judges? Do you remember? There's a vicious cycle that keeps repeating in the book of Judges. It's the cycle of sin, idolatry, and God sending plunderers into Israel to chastise them, and then a crying out of Israel to Yahweh to save them, and then a judge being sent as a deliverer, and then all the days of that judge's life, Israel worships God, Yahweh, rightly, and then the judge dies, and they fall right back into sin. And it repeats, rinse and repeat, about six, seven times in the book of Judges. And often this verse follows the cycle, and it actually ends the entire book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's repeated three or four times in the book. And it is the very last verse of chapter 21, the last chapter of the book. So the context of 1 Samuel 1 is there is no king in Israel. And everyone's doing what is right in his own eyes. And then on the cusp of that, here's this righteous man. He's doing good. He's worshiping Yahweh rightly. Even though, we find out later, the sons of Eli, the priests of Yahweh, are not worshiping God rightly. They're abusing the people. They're taking advantage and consuming, devouring the people, metaphorically speaking. But this man goes up to Shiloh, where the tabernacle is, year by year, to worship and sacrifice to Yahweh of hosts. He's a righteous man. Israel's in a time of decline. Israel's in a bad way. There is no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. But there still is a remnant of righteousness. And this man, Elkanah, is one of those men. He's a faithful servant of Yahweh. He practices the faith. He practices the covenant of Moses. So it is possible to find righteousness even in times of decline. But the Mosaic covenant is breaking down. It's not working anymore. Because of Israel's idolatry and unfaithfulness, people aren't listening to Moses. And the book of Judges is a big testament to that fact. So what's going to happen? How is Israel going to be saved? What is Yahweh going to do? How is Yahweh going to renew the covenant? And that's where we get humble Hannah. Hannah is a barren woman, yes? And that seems like a repeating pattern, doesn't it? Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, the mother of Samson in the book of Judges, all barren women that end up getting pregnant and having a child and God using that child to renew covenant. And now it's going to happen again. Now, why does God work in that manner? Why does God do this? Why are we always seeing barrenness and promised seed in the Bible? I'm giving it away there. Because of Eve, because of the woman. Eve is the first barren woman. I know she has children. I'm not, I'm not changing the story. But in the garden, when she sins, she doesn't have any children. She's quote unquote barren. And a curse is put upon her, but a promise is given to her too. The promise of a child, a seed. Uh, the, 
The big word is proto-evangelion, if you want to use that word. But it's the promise of Christ, Genesis 3.15. So bearing children is the main crucible that God gives to women. Bearing children in pain. That's the curse. That's the crucible God gives. It's a direct curse based on Eve's sin. But for you women here, it's not a direct curse based on your sin. In other words, you can't draw a straight line from sins you commit to having pain in childbirth. You can't do that. It's a crucible. It's something separate from your sin. It is a curse laid upon you, though, by God and all women. And, of course, men have their own curses. But this woman in this story has a worse crucible. Not only is she going to bear children in vain, I'm I'm sorry, bear children in pain, like all other women, she's actually been not allowed to bear children at all. She's given a worse situation. But maybe I should ask you this. What's worse, ladies? You, you answer this rhetorically. What's worse, the pain of childbearing or being barren and no pain at all? What, what pain is worse, the physical pain of childbirth or the existential, mental, emotional grief of barrenness? I pray that none of you are barren, but if you are, you can answer that question. The latter is worse. Barren women can be faithful, though, as we can see here. So problem number one for Hannah is she's barren. Problem number one, crucible level one, temperature level one, barrenness. Okay? Crucible level two, she has a rival. Let's reread verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because Yahweh had closed her womb. Hannah is the favored wife. But the favored doesn't do much for her, at least not from her perspective. It doesn't get her much. It gets her a lot of trouble. It gets her a lot of grief. She receives the double portion from her husband, which is odd because she has no children. Elkanah gives a portion to Peninnah and her sons and daughters, and then he doubles it and gives it to Hannah, who doesn't have any children. That's odd. That's strange. But Hannah, her name in Hebrew means favored one. So she literally is a favored one by her husband, Elkanah. And this causes a rivalry to break out, which jealousy and greed and The ob- uh, a singular object of two people's affection always does bring rivalry, doesn't it? All the way back to Cain and Abel. What does Hannah want? She wants children. What does Peninnah want? She wants favored status. Both women want what the opposite woman has, and neither of them are happy. Neither of them are joyful. They're both miserable. But one woman chooses to provoke and irritate the other, and one chooses chooses to patiently endure. Hannah's the favored wife. Peninnah has the children. Both are miserable. And persecution ensues. And the persecution apparently lasts long term. Years, in fact. Look at verse 7. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of Yahweh, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Notice what's being alluded to here. The closer they get to Shiloh, the worse the provocation gets. 
In other words, in our modern vernacular, the closer they got to church, the worse this woman would treat the other woman. That's very interesting. The closer she gets to God's house, the worse her crucible becomes. And notice that we don't read Hannah refusing to go to worship. She continues to go year by year. And later, I haven't read this yet, I'll read it in a minute. Later in uh, verse 22, she has the option to not go up to worship. When Samuel's born, later on, and she's not yet weaned him, she stays home during these yearly trips. And Elkanah allows it. So she probably had the option before not to go. But she chooses to continue to go. Walk into the persecution that she's going to, she knows is coming. It happens every year. Let's imagine maybe some of the things that uh, Peninnah might say to her. These are just, and I'm, I'm thinking from the male perspective. You women could probably come up with better ones. But imagine some of the catty, uh, vindictive things that could be said from one woman to another. Uh, Hannah, you got the double portion again, I see. Is that because you have a child inside you? Oh, you don't? Too bad. Or something like, obviously, Hannah, Yahweh is angry with you. Maybe you need to offer a sin offering so he will relent from cursing your barren womb. Or something like that. You can, your imagination can run wild there. It was torturous. It was mean. It was vindictive. And it was constant. And it ramped up the closer they got to God's house. So problem number one, barrenness. Problem number two, rivalry. Problem number three, the heat gets, just keeps getting turned up on this woman. Misunderstanding husband and blind priest. Notice what... Notice what Elkanah says to her. Am I not better to you than ten sons? Men, let me just tell you, don't ever say that to your wife. Especially if she's barren. Cold comfort. Can a man really ever understand barrenness? No. And especially Elkanah, he already has at least four kids, right? She has, Peninnah has sons and daughters. That's at least four. So he's not barren. He can't understand this. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Am I not giving you the double portion? Shouldn't that be enough for you, Hannah? It's not enough. And then in verse 13, what does Eli tell her? You drunken woman, put away your wine. Stop what you're doing. Stop sinning. Later in the book, we learn that uh, Eli physically becomes completely blind. But spiritually, spiritual blindness is already setting in on Eli's life. His sons are evil, and he doesn't see it. And here's a righteous woman pouring out her heart to Yahweh, and he doesn't see it. He sees the opposite of what's real. He's blind. He's not a comforting priest. He's not a good high priest. And we learn later the, the, that God's going to cut him off and cut his household off. So neither Elkanah nor Eli can really see into the heart of Hannah and her plight. And neither man can truly help her, even if they did see it clearly. Hannah is completely alone. No, she's not. Yahweh is with her. In the crucible, when the fire is turned up the hottest, that's when the purifying happens. That's when the dross is burned up. That's when the gold and the silver or whatever precious metal is in there becomes purified. All impurities are removed by the heat, but the precious metal stays. It might be melted, but it's still there, pure. Because Hannah is a faithful woman, she sees clearer than anyone else around her. 
Eli cannot help her. Elkanah cannot help her. Peninnah won't help her. Who can help her? Yahweh of hosts can help her. And that's who she cries out to. Now, let me stop a minute and more clearly define what I mean by crucible. Hannah is in a crucible. Yahweh is withholding a good thing from Hannah. And the attendant sufferings of that withholding from God, her barrenness, brings provocation and misunderstanding. Yahweh is doing this to her. That's why I'm calling it a crucible. This is not punishment for sin. Hannah does nothing wrong in this chapter of the Bible. That's not how the story is written. It isn't as if God is saying, Hannah, because of your disobedience, I'm going to lay upon you this barrenness. No, he's not doing that. He's laying upon a burden on her. He's laying a crucible on her, but not because of sin. Her desire for children is righteous. Don't make, don't, but don't mistake in your life, if you try to apply this to your life, that every unanswered prayer is a crucible. Just because God doesn't answer your prayer doesn't mean you're being tested by God in a fiery trial. It could be that he's saying no, or it could be he's saying not yet, or it could be he's saying straighten up first. But that's not what he's saying here. It's possible to ask for something from God that is wrong and God withhold it from you. But that's not a trial. That's mercy. God expects his people to refrain from sin in and out of fiery trials. You are the servants of the Lord, are you not? Do what a servant must do. But we see here, especially in verses 16 to 20, the faith of Hannah inside the crucible. What does she say in verse 16? Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. Um, if you read the New King James or possibly the King James, it says something different there. It says, do not regard your servant as a daughter of Belial. It's a strange way of talking. It's a very Hebrew way of talking. A daughter of Belial is tantamount to a fool. Later on in the book, Eli's sons are called sons of Belial. And then I think it's uh, uh, Nabal, the fool, that, the husband of Abigail, also is called a son of Belial. And then David uses the phrase a couple of times saying, I'm not a son of Belial. What is son of Belial? What is daughter of Belial? I think the New Testament equivalent is a son or daughter of Beelzebub. That'd be the, that'd be the Greek rendition of that word. I'm not a daughter of the devil. I'm not a demon. I'm not a Satan worshiper. I'm not demon possessed. It's something like what she's saying. It's translated in my Bible, a worthless woman. I don't think that does the full justice of the phrase. But she's telling Eli, don't look at me as somebody who is a drunkard. Don't look at me as somebody who is not pouring out her soul to Yahweh, but is on a bender or on a hangover. That's not, that's not what I'm doing here. I'm in great anxiety. I'm in great vexation of spirit. And I'm coming to Yahweh and I'm crying out to him to deliver me. That's what's going on, Eli. You don't see it. I'm not a daughter of Belial. Let's look closely at her prayer. This is found in verse, uh, back up a little bit. Verse uh, 14, no. Verse 11 and 10. Verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to, the, to Yahweh and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, so here's her prayer. Yahweh of hosts. If you will indeed look on the 
on the affliction of your servant. And remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. There's three parts to her prayer. First, it's who she's addressing. Yahweh of armies. Literally in the Hebrew, that's what she says. Yahweh of armies. We render that in our Bibles, Lord of hosts. When I was a kid, when I heard that phrase, Lord of hosts, the thing that came into my mind, I grew up in a Baptist uh, church, the thing that came into my mind was a fat baby with a harp, mostly naked, on a cloud, and a bunch of them playing songs for God around God's throne. That was the host, the fat babies. Like those pictures, you know, in the Renaissance or something. That's not the picture you're supposed to get. Let me wipe that away. I know that's comical, but that's what I would think of. Let's wipe that away. What is Yahweh of armies? What is the army? It's the martyrs. It's the departed saints. It's the angelic hosts of heaven surrounding God's throne right now. And what do they look like? Do they look like fat babies strumming harps? No. They look frightening. They're a war host. There's a, there's a passage where Elijah, Elisha sees them, and then he grants, I believe, the other guy who's with him, I can't remember his name, a glimpse of what he's seeing, and it's this scary host, thousands, tens of thousands, myriads, as the Bible says, of mounted warriors coming to defend Yahweh's name. That's who we should think of. That's who she's praying to. She's not praying to Santa Claus. And then the second thing is her petition. What is she asking? Strange, thing, strange way to pray. We, do we pray this way? Listen to this. Look on my affliction. Remember me. Do not forget me. That's really her request. Look upon me. That's, what is that? that sounds like the psalmist, doesn't it? Over and over and over in the psalms, we hear those kinds of things. Vindicate me. Look upon me in my righteousness. It's almost hard to sing when you sing it, right? Because you're like, I know I'm a sinner. This is not good Calvinism here. I'm righteous? Yeah, in Christ you are. That's how we should pray. And then the third thing is something we don't do either very often, or we think is maybe wrong to do. She makes a vow. If you will give me a son, his life will be yours. And as a sign of this, I will make him a Nazarite. So what are the signs of a faithful prayer in 1 Samuel 1? The petitioner knows who they're talking to. Not Santa Claus, not the vindictive smiter of uh, the Old Testament, like, you know, it's like a caricature in our day, day and age. But a child speaking to her father, and her father being a king and a mighty one that has a great army. And then the petition portion is not a bargaining up with God. It's not a quid pro quo, this for that. It's, if you will take away my reproach, everything you give me, I'll just give back. Just remove this reproach from me. Take away this crucible from me. I'll give everything back to you. I'll give the child back to you. Just shut this woman up, please. She's torturing me, and I'm trying to worship, and I can't worship because of her. I can't have peace in my marriage because of her. And then she makes this faithful petition, even if God, you don't do this. I'm still going to main, remain faithful. That's, that's assumed in the text. It doesn't say that necessarily, but it's assumed. She's been faithful year by year by year and probably been praying this prayer year by year by year. And now it's just pouring out of her, so much so that Eli thinks she's a drunkard. 
What does Eli say to her when he realizes his mistake? Verse 17. It's a strange verse. Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant... He doesn't say the Lord. He doesn't say Yahweh grant your petition. He says, the God of Israel, Elohim of Israel, is what he says. He identifies Elohim as the God of the man that used to be called Jacob, the heel grabber. But his new name is God wrestler, Israel. The one who wrestles with God and wins, and then is granted the covenant. That's who Jacob was, right? He limped the rest of his life going forth into the covenant as with a new name because he beat Yahweh. He won the wrestling match. Don't miss that. That's who Eli says, grant your petition. And then listen to her response. It's, it's equally strange. And she said, verse 18, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate and her face was no longer sad. It's impossible that she could have a child at this point. She hasn't conceived anything at this point. All she has is the word of Eli, the half-blind priest, saying, go in peace. And she's willing with that word alone, in faith, to say, I'm not going to cry anymore. God has answered my petition. I'm going, to be, I'm going to believe that I'm going to get what I have asked for. Let thy maidservant find grace in thy sight. It's almost as if she's placing herself in Eli's hands as the high priest, as the representative of God on earth. And his power, Eli's power, to grant the petition on behalf of Yahweh. Notice what she does after the petition is answered by him. She does something faithfully that up to this point she hasn't done faithfully. Again, I don't think she's sinned in this, but she hasn't faithfully done one thing. She goes and eats. Now, don't miss what that is. It's not just a hamburger or whatever. It's, she goes and eats the peace offering, the double portion that Elkanah gave her that she refused to eat earlier in the chapter. She continues and finishes the worship service and eats the food of Yahweh, the peace of God. She eats the bread and the wine, in other words, in Old Covenant sense. That's faithfulness. She went her way, she ate, and she was no longer sad because she believed everything had changed. Her prayers were answered, even though it's impossible that she could have conceived a child up to this point. Yahweh has heard my prayer. He will remember me. He will not forget me. He has looked upon my affliction. I have the words of the high priest, even though he's not a very good high priest. <laughs> doesn't matter. To Hannah, at this point in time, before any actual prayer is answered, the crucible is over. She's endured the fiery trial. She's been purified. So how do we apply this to us, to our situation? All faithful Christians will face trials. That's a given. The image of the crucible should be used as a handle to understand and accept what God is doing when you find yourself in the fire. Remember the story of Hannah. Remember the metaphor of a crucible. As the furnace heats up, we will find more and more difficult to remain grateful to God. But we keep the metaphor of the crucible before our eyes and remember that God is purifying us. He's maturing us. He's renewing us for greater glory. 
And in that crucible, complaining is not necessarily wrong. But remember who you should complain to. Who did Hannah complain to? Her husband? No. Her rival? No. The high priest? No. She complained to Yahweh. God, take away my reproach. God, give me vindication. Now, be careful. Don't apply this woodenly, wrongly. Don't always read the narrative of your life as you're the protagonist, you're the hero, and everything that happens to you means that you're in a fiery trial. Don't do that. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm saying it will happen, but there are going to be situations where you've sinned and you just need to confess it and forsake that sin. And the trial that you think you're having is really because you've sinned. Stop sinning. Clear? Okay, yeah, that's clear. But there is times where trials come upon you, unbidden and unrelated to any connection to any kind of sin. It can be you personally. It can be your family. It can be your church. It can be your town. It can be after a bad election that didn't go your way. It's not your fault that the election didn't go your way. You voted. You voted for the right candidate, but the right candidate didn't win. Now what happens? Persecution may come. Confession of sin is good and right. We should do it. But this story shows us that crucibles are where God is not dealing with you as a sinner in need of repentance, but rather he's dealing with you as his child in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation who needs strength, who needs faith to overcome great obstacles. We read 1 Peter, right? I'll read it again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm talking about. Peter understands it. In fact, all of 1 Peter is really about suffering. So when you find yourself in a crucible, what should you do? Wrestle with God and win. Like Israel. Like Jacob. How? How do we do that? How did Hannah do it? How did she win? She continued faithfully in worship. She cried out to the Yahweh of armies. And she believed his promises and she paid her vows. God gave her a son, we know. And what did she do with that son? She did exactly what she said she was going to do. She didn't cut his hair and she gave him back to the Lord after he was weaned. Not, I'm not saying you should do that, by the way. You shouldn't be giving the Hemikis your kids after they're weaned and saying, okay, here you go. You're the priest or you're the pastor. Make them serve, make them serve at, the, at the chapel. Crucibles are a way that God takes us from glory to greater glory. Hannah was taken from glory to greater glory. The Hannah of verse 3 is glorious, right? She's a faithful woman. She's obeying Yahweh. The Hannah of verse 20 is more glorious. She's a faithful woman still, and she has a son. And she's been through the fire, and she can now do something that she couldn't have done in verse 4, I believe. In other words, I'm asking rhetorically the question, why does God put us through these trials? What does he want from us? What does he want to do to us? He wants to make us into the kind of people that can then do the next thing he has. Uh, a, a terrible way of saying it would be, um, like at work, uh, no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> 
you do a good deed for God, you, you remain faithful under trial, you're probably going to get another one. It may be even harder. The Lord Jesus did, did he not? Did he suffer persecution? Yes. Did it get harder as he lived his life? Yes. Until they finally killed him. And then he rose again. That's the way of the cross. That's the way of the crucible. In fact, crucible and cross are really the same root word. But notice what, Han what happens to Hannah. Some things just cannot be attained by sin and repentance. Some things can only be attained by living through experiences. Uh, is there a five-year-old in here? I assume there is. Okay. Can we expect 25-year-old behavior out of a five-year-old? No. How long does it take to get to 25-year-old behavior? 20 more years, most likely. Maybe not. Maybe they'll grow up a little sooner than that. All right, what about the opposite? Can we expect 25-year-olds to act like five-year-olds? Sometimes. Why? Because they refuse to grow up. They refuse to mature. They didn't respond rightly to whatever crucible God gave to them. Hannah is more glorious in the end of this story. She has become not just a mother. She's become a mother who can raise a judge slash prophet slash Nazarite slash kingmaker. That's what Samuel is. That's what he becomes. We know that. We don't know exactly how she does this. We don't have those details. Maybe Samuel is simply endowed by God from birth with special abilities. He's a spiritual prodigy, maybe. Possible. In closing, I just want to read the rest of the story, okay? And have, it, have the weight of it land on you, hopefully, now that you're prepared to hear it. Verse 21. The man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to Yahweh the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of Yahweh and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may Yahweh establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of Yahweh at Shiloh. And the child was young. I would say probably three years old or less. When they slaughtered the bull, then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to Yahweh. For this child I prayed, and Yahweh has granted my, me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to Yahweh. As long as he lives, he is lent to Yahweh. Notice that last phrase. And he, Samuel, worshipped Yahweh there. He worships Yahweh there. This little boy, three years old, maybe two, I don't know. How is that, how is that possible? How did... Hannah, in three short years or less, teach an infant, toddler, to worship. Think about it. Most likely, Hannah cannot read and write. Nobody can in these days. Only maybe the, the scribes and the priests. So she didn't teach him how to read and write. Teach him how to read the Torah. I'm sure she probably did expose him to the Torah in some way, the, the books of Moses in some way, if it was possible. It's almost certain, though, that she couldn't teach him letters, as it were. She must have taught him things from memory, though. 
And the next chapter gives us this song of Hannah that she must have taught to her child, her nursing child. As he was nursing, she was singing this song to him. It almost has to be that way. Her infant son, as he nursed at, her mother, at his mother's breast, learned this next song. And I'm going to read it to you now. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like Yahweh, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Yahweh makes poor and makes rich. He makes low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. There is no king. We know that from the last verse of the last book. She's prophetically uttering to her infant son the things that are going to happen now for the rest of this book and 2 Samuel. How in the world did this woman become a prophetess? She can't even read and write. You know the answer. The crucible. The crucible turned this humble woman into this prophetess who raised up a son, only had three years with him, taught him this song apparently because he writes it in his book later on. He remembers it for 80 or maybe even 90 years later when he writes this book. And it's become his marching orders for the rest of his life. And all these things take place. The house of Eli falls. They're broken into pieces. But he exalts the horn of his anointed. Who's that? That's David. She's probably long dead by the time David is even arriving on the scene. Could Hannah have composed this song if she had not been taken through the crucible of barrenness? No way. So, I ask you, can Christ Church Livingston County be the kind of church, be the kind of Christians who can endure and overcome the trials of America in decline without God purifying you? I don't think so. You're just not that mature. And I don't say that with any sort of pride in my heart. I'm not that mature. We have to be taken through these trials, these fiery trials. So then, my friends, whether you're currently in a fiery trial or one soon comes upon you, whether individually or corporately, my prayer for you, my message to you this morning, is to be of good cheer. Count it all joy. Christ our Lord himself endured many fiery trials, even though sinless. Therefore, we his people can expect no less from our Heavenly Father. He loves us, he wants to mature us, and he wants to purify us into a more glorious church that will rise up out of our sorrows with a new song of praise on our lips, like Hannah, like David like all the psalms. So why do we sing psalms? Back to the original question. Why do we sing psalms? 
because they are the Bible's lyrical fruit of the crucible. Lyrics forged by our mothers and fathers in the faith when they pass through the consuming fire of Yahweh, which we now sing as we wrestle, win, and limp like Israel from glory to glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for how you have taught us by our nursing mothers, by our fathers in the faith, by our own parental guides, if we've had faithful parents, and through the trials and tribulations of life. We ask that as this church is growing and changing and being renewed by your spirit, that you would give them the crucible of faith that would lead them into the future that you have planned by your spirit. We ask all these in Christ. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. At the Last Supper, Jesus faced Judas across the Passover table as he instituted this sacrament. And we, as we sit at this table, we face enemies as we partake here too. Temptations to pride, feeling that we have earned this meal by not falling into gross sin. Temptations to despair, feeling that we are not worthy to, to partake. Trials that make us doubt God's goodness, even here at this table. But this table reminds us that God is with us through all the shadows, all the crucibles of life. Amidst the sorrows, there are joys, anointing oil, cup running over. And as we approach Thanksgiving, remember to recount the goodness of God in your life. And when you think of the frustrations, the setbacks, the trials that he's given you, even in those crucibles, as they refine you, God has been good. These are gifts of God for the people of God. We invite all those who are uh, members of a Bible-believing church, all those who are uh, active in a congregation, covenantally bound to the triune God through word and sacrament, to come uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we eat the bread and drink the wine together, you acknowledge with us that you are a sinner without hope, except in the sovereign mercy of God, that you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.